you're listening to High Performance. Thanks for coming back for more. And I'm glad you have, because this is what's in store for you. Watching my parents scream at each other for six hours a day as a kid was miserable. I didn't want to be miserable. So what is failure? Failure, in fact, would be the concession. Failure, in fact, would be leading that life. Everything else is an attempt at success. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. With me, as always, author of Liquid Thinker, lecturer and professor within the field of high-performing teams and cultures is Damien Hughes and we're both intrigued to speak to our guest today, right? I am very much, yeah, definitely. I think um, when we were looking at um, this particular guest I, I, I was reminded of the work of a guy called Howard Gardner who's an educational psychologist Jake and he often talks about how formal education fails the vast majority of children because we ask our students how clever are you when they leave and what he suggests is the question we should be asking is not how clever are you but how are you clever because we're all we all have intelligence but we have it in different fields and I think our guest today is somebody that's demonstrated intelligence in numerous fields. I'm excited already to get going. That will fill the, the first hour of the podcast. <laughs> Let's do it then. Um, I am also really pleased and deeply honoured that this guest has joined us on the podcast because his is my favourite podcast. Um, he is disruptive, he's self-made, he's challenging, he's hugely successful, he always seems to have one eye on the future. I'm massively jealous of him and the work he does on social media and I just think it's brilliant. Uh, so welcome to High Performance, the CEO and the founder of Social Chain, Stephen Bartlett. How are you? I'm so flattered. So if I, was, I, was like, I felt a little bit Sorry. nervous that I'm like, starting by embarrassing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's never the no, best way to no, begin, is it? It's an absolute honour to be on this podcast. It's an absolute honour. And, you know, you're, you're two both very successful people that I've that I know very well I've probably creeped on both of your stories more than I think you realize so yeah super honored to be here mine's just full of a badly behaved Labrador so <laughs> there's not much you're missing um well, I reckon we should start with your question it sort of feels like the perfect place to start Damien yeah that question does often intrigue me Stephen that um that idea of how are you clever so Howard Gardner's argument is that he talks about multiple intelligences and some kids are physically gifted, some are verbally gifted, some are socially gifted, mm. physically gifted. You're somebody that checked out of education at 18 mm -hmm. and then have gone on to be phenomenally successful without it. So tell us more about that. Yeah, do you know, I really love that question. How are you clever? Um, because it's something that I've looked back on my life and tried to answer. And I'm really cautious of giving a 
egotistical, arrogant answer that shines too much light on my own skills and ability because I, I know the role that timing and luck have played in the success of the business that I run now and timing and luck weren't there on my first business um, but they were on this one but looking back on my life so expelled from school when I was 16 for not attending my attendance has hit 30% and the reason why I was expelled and wasn't going to school was because I was preoccupied running various businesses one of the businesses was for the school so I was responsible for all the school trips um, and uh, events for sixth form when I was 16 I was doing the consent forms finding a city to go to a theme park handing out writing collecting the money for for the school trips um, to the point where the school had given me a whole wall in the school just to advertise events or things that I'd come up with I'd also done all of the the deals for the vending machines in the schools because I'd overheard a conversation between a girl called Carly Stokes and Natalie, who were the head, heads of the uh, sixth form, where they were trying to find which vending machines to buy. And I interjected and said, we don't need to buy vending machines. We have 2,000 paying customers in students in the school. They should be giving us vending machines for free and giving us the profits. So I went to, the, went to the, uh, the computer room at break time. By lunchtime, a guy had showed up at our school who had got one of my emails with a tape measure just to measure them. Turns out the email had stumbled into the hands of uh, the CEO of that business who uh, went to our school and was looking to give back. And so still to this day, the deal we have is we make money from all the vending machines in the school and we got them all for free. I was doing all of these things, but they still expelled me because on one hand, I was entrepreneurial. On the other hand, I was a, a misfit because I didn't fit into... Um, their idea of what a good student or success looked like. How am I clever? Hard question. Not good at math, not good at English, not really good at anything as it relates to school. My grades were so bad that I forged the, the grade certificate. So that's probably the, f- <laughs> my dad's just found that out. But the, the certificate I gave him was forged wow. because my brothers are all straight A. So I, I yep. felt bad. I think I have always believed that I could. And that as a force for learning new things and making yourself seem smart is remarkable. That as a force for achieving things and putting yourselves in situations that you're not qualified to be in is unbelievable. So if there was one thing I'd say, it's that I always believed I could, even when there was no reason for me to believe such a thing. That really fascinates me because having worked in sort of like deprived areas of Manchester, uh, which is where I'm from, one of the things that often intrigues me is a quote from Mother Teresa where she says the real tragedy of deprivation isn't the physical deprivation, but it's what it does to your hopes and your dreams and your ambitions. Mm-hmm. Because if all you're surrounded by misery, that's all you assume life has got an offer to you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as a 16 year old boy, you know, interloping on these deals for vending machines mm-hmm. and organizing trips abroad and things like that, mm-hmm. where did you learn you could? So this is a really interesting question as well, because typically you think that something good happened and then I, I developed this self-belief. But I actually think it was the opposite. I think by at about 10 years old, my mum got so consumed with running her businesses, which all failed and still failed to this day. For 20 years, it made our family completely bankrupt. What were those businesses in? She would try, this, she would try anything. So right. she would she tried a hair salon and the problem my mother always had is someone could walk in and tell her that the grass was greener for people running corner shops. So my mum would be like, okay, I'm going to open a corner shop. She'd go and try and do that as well. The hair salon would fail. And when the business of uh, her corner shop started to get tricky, she'd be influenced by the grass appearing to be greener elsewhere. So for 20 years, she'd started 20 different businesses and it ruined ruined our our family. It ruined our childhood. Our house, as I've said on my podcast, the front of it had smashed windows for a decade and a half. 
in a middle class area. And and this is a, probably the real psychological thing, which I never really go too much into. When you're the only black kid in a school of 1500 white kids in the countryside and you're living in a middle class area, but your house is the grass is six foot high at the, at the back and there's fridges in the garden and the front of your house is smashed and you're arriving to school in a beat up, horrible car that has doors hanging doors hanging off it the sense of inadequacy that creates and the hunger to be like everybody else and to be normal and to have money becomes this driving factor that's not necessarily a healthy thing but um that coupled with the fact that my parents were never there my dad worked in london which is four hours away my mum was so obsessed with running her businesses that she slept on the floor of her shops meant that there was this void of independence Everything I was going to have was a direct result of my own life. And I was so hungry to have it because I felt so inadequate that off I went into the world at 18 years old, writing in my diary that I was going to be a millionaire before I was 25. A Range Rover was going to be my first car. I was going to uh, have a girlfriend because when you live in such a house, you can't get girlfriends, by the way. Um, and that I was going to work on my body image. These, this was all because I, if, when I reflect, I'm like, there was something missing in me. I, I was inadequate. That's a lesson that a lot of people come to later on in life in terms of recognising this locus of control, that, mm. that if it's going to be, it's down to me. Yeah. And you learnt that very young. Because when, when you wake up in the morning and all the kids around you have Rockport shoes on and you look around and no one is going to give you Rockport shoes, you're not going to get anything for Christmas, you're not going to get anything for your birthday... So how are you going to get these Rockport shoes that you desperately need to fit in because you're already black and have curly hair? So Rockports are more important to me than anybody, but no one's going to give them to me. So you start selling shit on the playground. And I started selling cigarettes and I started selling sweets and I started doing things that maybe weren't so good to get money. And so my locus of control came from the fact that I realised very early that nobody was going to do anything for me. You know what I think is really interesting here is is a word that I didn't even realise was important to success until three or four months ago. I went to see a CEO of a big multinational corporation that turns over about three billion pounds, and I foolishly went to ask him to be on the board of Whisper Group, right? And he said, listen, <laughs> I'm the chairman of this huge company, I can't just come be on your board, but do you know what? The fact you've, out of the blue called my PA, come in and met me, and then asked me to be on the board, shows you've got the single most important thing I think that you need for success, which is courage. Mm. And when I hear you talking about being the black kid in school, standing out, having people walk past your house going, who lives there? Oh, that's that guy Stephen from school. And then the next day you get up and you walk into the school playground, you walk into the classroom, you take the responsibility to find your place in that environment. Mm -hmm. The one thing that the one word that keeps standing out to me of that is courage. Mm. And I don't know whether you realised how courageous you were to keep doing that. I've probably never thought of it as courageous because it was survival, right? To me, it was, the, as a kid, yeah. you're just trying to survive. But now look at everything you've done since then yeah. to the point where you're sitting here now and reframe it with courage. Yeah, it is. It's a good word. But you don't realise that you're being courageous when you're trying to survive. You can't be <laughs> consumed with the thought of uh, courage and bravery in it when you're just trying to survive and get through and fit in. And um, it wasn't until I was 18 that I find all of those character traits that I'd built from survival allowed me to like release all of those people from my past life that I tr tried so hard to fit in with and then go after being Steve, go after who Steve could be. And that foundation made me think that I genuinely could do anything. And this is a belief I have now. I genuinely believe that I can do anything. And in fact, my, my favourite quote is, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both usually right. 
Because when I look back at my life, I'm like, there's no real reason I should be here other than the fact that I knew I would be. Simple as that. I knew I would be. My diary that everyone in this, you know, everyone in my company has seen and everyone that follows me has seen says that I was going to be a millionaire before I was 25. Not I would like to be or I, I was going to be. There's no other version of this life that I was going to lead. But there's something very powerful there, isn't there, about feeding that into your subconscious and because your subconscious doesn't understand the difference between mm. future and present reality, which is why we can... Mm. Our worries can often appear very real to us because we're anticipating yeah, things and yet you've harnessed that in a positive direction of rather than make it a worry, mm. you've fed into your unconscious mind this idea that I am going to do this. It's yeah. a, with a sense of certainty. There was no doubt in my mind. There so was no do you other still life. do that now then, Stephen? Do you still write your diary now with these projections? I don't, I don't write goals down that I want to achieve because they're so internalized they're so clear in my mind i don't need to write them i don't need to wake up in the morning and say them to myself in the mirror i know where i want to go in my life and i cannot see another ending to my story if this doesn't go how i want it to go with my life the great things that i want to accomplish then i actually don't know the art i don't know what else to say to that sentence because that's the only thing that's going to happen in my life and i've felt that the whole time i don't know where that comes from when i think about belief and self-belief often people will tell you oh yeah just believe in yourself wake up in the morning say your affirmations but that's not how belief works and i've, I've said a few times that you know if i got your your parents and i held a gun to their head and said i'm going to kill them unless you believe that i am jesus christ of nazareth there's nothing you could do to, to believe that because that's not how belief works. So just telling someone to believe in themselves is just wasted sure. words and naivety. Belief for me is something that you build based on evidence. If I yeah. suddenly turned wine into water, you might start to believe that I'm Jesus. And, and you have to build that evidence within your own life because of the void of my, my childhood and my parents not being there. Every day I was building this evidence that, Steve, you wanted Rockport shoes and look, you've got them. And the, the thing that drove that outcome was you. So I did all these small things which are compounding and belief. So now when I think, Steve, if you want to go to the moon, could you make that happen 100%? My brain doesn't go, oh no, this isn't possible. What if I fail? My brain goes, like, what's the path there? Not, is there a path there? What is the path there? It's definitely possible. We just need to figure out how to get there. And um, I think that's, that's my advice to people that are lacking self-belief is... It's really about building evidence in your own life by taking these small steps every day. And, and, and Jake talked a little bit about this, which is just, you know, just do. And that's how I think you build belief. I spoke in front of a couple of people when I was 16. It went really badly. I was shaking so much that I couldn't uh, read what it's saying. And you, you, you fast forward 10 years of me just doing that. And I'm on stage in front of 15,000 people. I'm doing arenas in Barcelona with 9,000 people. Where, how did I get there? Just doing, you know? This kind of comes back to the fact there's no secrets right yeah there is no secrets yeah. so there will be people listening to this now who hear you talk beautifully and passionately about your self-belief and they'll think well, that's great for him but i haven't got that um he huh. must he obviously knows yeah. something i don't that's the other thing to really say to people is if you're listening to this and you don't feel and not many people by the way will be listening to this with your level of self-belief like that is remarkable even i wouldn't say i believe like like you mm. really believe it's fantastic but those people that are listening and think, ah, he's got it and I haven't. Okay. What do you say to that? You said, you said that there'll be people that are listening that are thinking, he knows something I don't. Mm -hmm. what I would, uh, my rebuttal to that would be that it's not that I know something you don't necessarily. It's that I did something you didn't, which was I put myself a little bit outside my comfort zone at some point, And then 
I failed or succeeded and I carried on going in that direction. And so it wasn't that I was born with this great wisdom or I, that, he, that I could even speak like this. I couldn't speak like this. This is all uh, my 10,000 hours of mm. doing this every it's day. Learn. I wasn't articulate. I couldn't spell. I still can't spell, to be honest, because I've not done my 10,000 hours. I can't do maths. I sound so smart now. And people are like, oh, you must have been born like this. My mum can't read or write. She still can't read or write. I remember being 12 years old and teaching her how to read the Bible. I don't come from there, but I did. And so this is one of the big things that I'm always scared of is people looking at me and saying, oh, he's smart or he knows stuff. It's, I know this stuff because I, I, I did. You know, when I started and I learned and I got a little bit better, then the next day I got a little bit better. But if you take it back, the, the, you know, a decade and a half, I was holding a piece of paper in front of 40 people. My hands were sweating so much and the piece of paper was shaking so violently in front of them that I couldn't read the words. So I remember just making up the words. That's the journey I've gone on just by... But then that's a really interesting relationship with failure as well because I think picking up on Jake's point that there'll be people here that that would do it and would fall over, would have that moment of shaking Mm. and stop at that moment and go, I I can't speak, it's not for me. What's your relationship with failure like then? It's uh, it's a lot easier to to accept failure when you're so unnegotiable about the outcome that you want to achieve. I would rather be trying and failing than concede for a life that wasn't true to who I wanted to be. So failure is is it means very very little in that context because when you have no choice and when you're so clear that you don't want to live the same life your parents lived, watching my parents scream at each other for 6 hours a day as a kid was miserable. I didn't want to be miserable. So what is failure? Failure in fact would be the concession. Failure in fact would be leading that life. Everything else is an attempt at success. You've really got to understand what failure is. For me, failure was getting a nine-to-five job in a miserable working environment and, and not being able to go on holiday with my kids and screaming at my, my partner about money. That was failure. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're totally right about reframing what we think of failure. Like if we all, if the three of us went to the gym, right? <clears throat> and I said, right, Stephen, get the 25 kgs and mm-hmm. try and do um, eight curls, right? And you manage six. What would we say? Fuck me. Well done, man. You managed six on 25 <laughs> kg and that's heavy. <laughs> that's failure because mm-hmm. you've got to the point where you can't lift anymore. Mm-hmm. But we look at it and go, wow, well done. That's great because we've been trained in our minds to think that that type of failure exactly. is a really good failure. Mm-hmm. Whereas... If you can look at every failure in your whole life, business failure, relationship failure, Mm. and look at it like that, like you found your limit. And so next time, instead of six, you're going to do eight. Mm -hmm. Or instead of your business failing on this occasion, next time it's going to succeed. Yeah. But then that's what fascinates me, that that's innate in you, that that's almost organic. You've learned that through experience. Yeah. You no, know, sure. it is. It is. I've always, I've always said that I was very, very logical. I remember one, uh, and I sometimes think logic <laughs> beats intelligence to some degree. I remember this, this really example from when I, when I was younger, and we were working in my mum's restaurant, which was one of her twenty businesses, and um, we got tips me and my me and my two brothers and they're mathletes which means they're in the top 1000 in UK mathematics right geniuses rewriting the textbooks and there was 
the tips were thrown on the table and I looked at the tips and my brothers were there like calculating like let's add it up and I looked and I saw that there was one of each coin three times so I thought let's just all take a coin do you know what I mean there's there was 350 piece yeah. one pound, and there was three of us so I thought let's just all take one coin and it was almost this moment where I thought my brain looks at something in a very logical, fundamental way, not necessarily the most intelligent way. And sometimes when you look at things just from these like logical first principles, you're able to um, see much clearer. And I think the same thing applies for my business. It's why I quit my first startup, because if you looked at it very logically, what was happening with our first company, there was a bigger opportunity elsewhere, but nobody else could see that. So I quit at 21 years old and started Social Chain. Same with school, university, to be honest. Arriving at university in my first week to study business because I thought that, you know, university was this place where we, they teach you actually business stuff and how to run a business and how to be a business person. And in the first week, looking across the room and seeing everybody sleeping on their desks and the guy at the front saying, we're going to learn how to make a poster here. And me asking me these really fundamental questions, which is, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, who am I going to show this degree to? The second one is, I'm going to end up in the same place with the same certificate as this girl sleeping on her desk. And is that going to work for me or against me? And so I only ever went to that lecture because I had made the decision that, again, very like impulsively or very logically that this wasn't the place that was going to get me to where I wanted to go. Yeah. So dropped out straight after that, after that lecture, never went back. And I think that is a really good lesson for, you know, probably the same as you. A lot of people will come to me on social media and say, I really want to work in TV, I've just mm. started a media degree, yep. what's your advice? My advice is always the same. Don't expect that media degree is going to get you a job. Mm. Be different to everybody else. And for anyone listening to this that is at this point where they're looking for, they may be 18, 19, they're looking for their thing, my advice is always don't do what 16,000 other media students are doing every year, which is leave university with a degree, go for an interview and go, there's my degree. <laughs> Find the thing that separates you from everybody else. Write stuff for free for your local paper. Mm. Record again and again and again. You either to camera if you want to be on the telly or using a microphone if you want to be on the radio. And then go to your friends and ask them to be searingly honest about whether it's shit or whether it's good. Mm -hmm. And keep on doing it. And then when you go in for your first interview, instead of just saying, well, I'm like everyone else, I've, I've yeah. just done the same route, you can say, well, I've done this off my own back. Yeah. This is what I've done. This is what separates me from everybody else and that is absolutely the biggest lesson i think isn't mm. it if you're like everybody else you'll end up where everybody else is yeah yeah what do they say the final mile is the one that gets walked the least yeah because <laughs> everyone stops yeah i would love to know what the culture is like at yeah. social chain because i listen to your sure. podcast right it yeah. is challenging you ask hard questions right mm -hmm. you put me as a listener of your podcast on the spot mm -hmm. are you like that to the people in social chain is that yes. is that you every day yeah i'm very very clear in what I believe and what I think we should be doing, even if it's not been done before, if there's not a roadmap or a reason why. There's this like an innate sense of logic to me. And if you walk into social chains offices in Manchester, you should know within five to 10 seconds that this is a uniquely different place. A place that is, isn't built on convention. How is it different? I mean, I mean, so you walk in there, there's, there's a hundred meter jungle where birds are singing. And people are happy. People are walking around doing whatever they want. There's no hierarchy. You wouldn't know that I was the boss. You would, you would have no idea. I sit wearing my cap and my shorts with the interns. You know, unlimited holidays. You don't have to tell someone when you're booking off a holiday and explain the rationale why you're doing that because I don't have to do that. So why would anyone else have to do that? There's this kind of like sense of trust, which is innate in the company where 
if you need to pop out today and you don't come to work, you don't have to explain yourself to somebody. You know, and, and, and I, this has all come from this. And there's a fucking massive slide and trees and 15 dogs running around. And um, there's a happiness team. So there's five people that work in the happiness team. There's a happiness director. Uh, we pay for your mental health therapy. And we have, you know, between 15 and 20 people seeing the therapist full time. Everybody has a therapy appointment, including me, that's opt out to destigmatize it. Yeah. So every, I go to a therapist if I don't want to go after opt out. Which sounds like an intriguing place. Mm. But how do you decide then who gets into that? So one of, this, one of the real, probably the most important thing about working with social chain is, and this is what I hear the managers say, oh, they're a real social chain person. And what they mean by that is like, they're a nice human being. They're not manipulative. They're not in it for themselves. They're a kind, nice human being. And it doesn't take long in an environment of nice human beings where the nice human beings are doing the hiring for someone to stand out as not a nice human being. I hate everything and I will not allow anything which is like, if you put a post-it note on the fridge saying, who stole my milk? Or if you post into a group chat, social chain saying, who's uh, taken my pencil? This is like, this is my kryptonite. And everybody knows this. So there's none of that. It's the reframing of what that moment was. You know, someone took your pencil because they were doing work for the company, right? They're not selling it on eBay or trying to stab your family with it. You know, so that kind of compassion and that empathy and that kindness is the foundation of this environment. And then from that, if it's a nice place to be, you can trust people and you don't need to give them a shit if they're 10 minutes late for work or an hour late for work. You can trust because you know that they'll, they'll, they like being here. And that's kind of the, the, the way that I made it probably because I couldn't work anywhere. And so obviously when I'm constructing a business, it's, I need to build somewhere where Steve Bartlett would work. But you still need high-achieving individuals that of are course. driven and passionate. To of course. S- you can't just fill a business with nice folk. Yeah, and that's the other point, which is you need to be talented. How, how do you instill the work ethic? By example, I guess that's probably the, the way. Um, you can't tell anybody to work hard. That doesn't seem like a, a good approach to take, but the, there's a culture of um, trust and, and hard work and getting the work done. And that's that's how social chains always grow. And it's so I remember talking to Rio Ferdinand about being at Manchester United, and I was really interested in how a new signing, or mm. in your case, a new employee at Social Chain, understands the way it works. And I remember saying to Rio, I was like, you know, what did Sir Alex Ferguson used to say to new signings at Man United? And he looked at me kind of perplexed and went, he never said a thing about that. No, it's a culture, right? We we were the players. Yeah. We set the tempo in that dressing yeah. room, and you would be welcomed in with open arms. It would be you're a Man United player. Mm. We would be watching like a hawk when they put the shirt on in training for the first day. Is this player good enough? Can they mix it with us? And the whole agenda was set by the players. When Owen Hargreaves signed for Man United, the halftime whistle went, and he started walking off towards the tunnel. One of the players ran past him and went, Owen, run into the dressing room. We all run into the dressing room. You don't show the opposition you're tired. Get in the dressing room. And he's like, whoa, man. Never was mentioned by the manager. I think, and I don't know this is true, but I think it was mentioned by the manager 20 years ago. Yeah, and then it becomes this the is culture. The way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and when the culture... Ha- culture has to come from somewhere. It does. And, it, and that kind of culture comes from a leader who's sure. And what happened, same with social chain. I probably was involved operationally in the, the headquarters in Manchester five years ago when there were six of us. And I was very, very clear to... to neurotic obsessively clear on who we are and what we do and then a seventh person joined and then an eighth person joined and when the culture is strong the newcomer becomes the culture if the culture is weak the culture becomes the newcomer 
right? So social chains, we're super clear on what we are and, and what a social chain person is. So now I'm five years in, I don't have to tell people because they're joining 200, in the case of the global business, 700 people that know. So if, if they fall out of line, Kate Leeson, our managing director, will say, that's not what a social chain person does. We, we established this years and years ago. And I no, lo- no, no longer need to say it because now my disciples, per se, are... Um, that's a big number, though, for creating a culture, 700-odd people, isn't it? Well, there's, there's interesting research on that, isn't there, that says that we can only hold in our heads 150 yeah. people at any one time. And then after that, yeah. we, we, it, the culture then starts to get disseminated. Yeah. So how have you sort of bridged that... Good question. ...to get beyond that 150 and make sure the culture lives so when you think about it as a global business they are cultures within each country so like the social chain new york team there's about 50 60 people there they are the culture is perfect we we actually score it we we ask people various questions about their development the happiness the people they're working with and they're like a nine out of ten on average in the uk it's a little bit bigger so it's about an 8.3 out of 10 and as cultures get bigger we do see a little bit of a decline um but it's kind of like microcultures. so i don't think any one team is more than 100 people i'm very conscious of what you're saying i'm conscious of the fact that things get a little bit too diluted at a point but the happiness team has been a revelation for us i see your role as being almost symbolic then that you have to lead by example there because you can't go and speak to all 700 people getting into Mm. the detail that you were when you first launched it you spoke about your diary and you shared that diary with people of, of mm-hmm. your ambitions and things like that. So what are the symbols of the culture now that that, mm. uh, that you embody when you lead by example? Do you know, I think some, there's something really interesting and there's almost a, a parallel between a conversation that me and Jake were having about the about social media and abuse and, and, and the Caroline Flack um, um, tragedy that, that took place where a platform or an environment can bring out the best or worst in people. And it's actually the the infrastructure and the way that the environment is designed that brings out that certain darkness or toxicity in someone. And it takes me back to when I was in San Francisco building social networks when I was 21 years old with Michael Birch, who was the founder of Bebo.com. I remember building a, a little social network where, on one hand, during the day, my users would do very normal things. There would be teachers, nice people, lovely people. Then when they went home at night, they would be vulgar. And it was the same person. He would go home and expose himself. And it made me think that, you know, the creepiness and this, 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 these horrible things are in all of us, right? We're all creeps in the right context. In the context of this social platform, it was because it was anonymous that he was being so vulgar at nighttime. And I think about the same thing with social media. The reason why people are how they are on social media and so toxic and disgusting isn't because that's the full entirety of their character it's because of the environment you are rewarded with likes and follows and retweets for for cussing someone out and going at a celebrity because then you're you know a tough guy and also the algorithm uh, magnifies that which is already being magnified so indifference and indifferent messages me telling jake he has nice hair and he's, he did well today is going to do nothing i'm not incentivized to do that i'm incentivized to rip him apart and in this, i think about the same in company culture I'm not able to be there and tell them what to do, but I can create an environment which is conducive with kindness, where kindness is incentivized, where every single Friday we have a massive wall, which is just the wall of thanks, and we go off it, you pick something off, you stand in front of the team and say, Jenny, here's a bottle of Prosecco. Um, Thank you so much for helping me 
with with my finger when I cut it in the kitchen. And you can create an environment where kindness is the thing you're rewarded for, not bitchiness. And that is a lot of my job. I can remind people on the walls, we have things written and I can I do my broadcast every month called Full Disclosure. But it's, it's, it's focusing on the, the environment that you're putting those people in. I could make the same people be assholes, I guarantee it, if I change the environment. So again, when we go back to that belief thing, so I love this idea. I mean, one of the big arguments that I often make is that people dismiss what you're describing as soft skills. And my argument is it's the soft skills that lead to hard results. Mm-hmm. That being kind creates mm-hmm. an environment where people then go the extra mile and things like that. To take you back to your childhood in Plymouth and you were clear that you didn't want a nine to five, you didn't want that frustration of a life like that. Where did you learn that kindness gets you results? There's a few things. You have to be in a situation where someone was somewhat unkind to you. I remember a few occasions and they were all in early jobs that I had where I was working in call centres and someone could be so mean to me or leave a passive aggressive note about something I'd left out on the side and the impact it had on me and how much it made me hate work. The other thing was I could do nothing about it. When you're an employee, especially a junior one, you can't complain about someone above you. You know, you have no control. So when I had the, finally had the chance to do something about workplace bullying or that kind of thing, I have a no tolerance approach to it. No one is going to do it. No one is going to let me know that it happened and everybody knows that that works for me. There's no passive aggressiveness. In fact, it sounds pretty crazy, but if someone posts in one of our internal groups, even now, and there's 700 odd people around the world, and they say, uh, which thief stole my pencil? I will, I will, I'll call you. No matter where I am on planet Earth, I'll call you. What would you say? and ask you why you said that and explain to you that calling your colleagues a thief even if it was a joke is not what we do here can anyone live a high performance life great question that i have never thought about it will be a lot harder for some people i think that your early childhood and what happens to you and maybe uh, a a genetic element makes it slightly easier for you to deal with the consequences of leaving a, living a high-performance life. I think some, in some respects I'm somewhat diseased. I think the way that I, I'm able to operate is, 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 a, is some kind of like mental illness. Yes. Yes. And um, I realised quite recently that I've always been, but I didn't, th- I didn't think I was yet. So how did you reframe that? I thought, again, because of my upbringing, that I couldn't possibly be happy until I was filthy, filthy rich and on private jets. And then it was the day where someone came up to me and said, we'll buy your business for tens and tens of millions. I went home, went on Rightmove Auto Trader on my mother's life. I loaded up Rightmove and Auto Trader. That's 18-year-old Steve showing up to get the rewards that he worked, that he <laughs> thought he was working hard for and just feeling this total sense of anticlimax and almost looking at these things and thinking, do you know, if I buy a mansion in the countryside, I actually think I'm going to be poorer in a sense. Then going through about six months of saying, so what were you doing all of this for? You know you were doing it for something, but you had told yourself you were doing it for material rewards. What was the, th- what was the actual reason? And then r- when you come to terms with the fact that you'll never get there, the question becomes, okay, so this must be there. And then I started to realise that, in fact, you, you, were, you were as happy now as you were when you were 18, stealing Chicago Town pizzas, living in Moss Side in Manchester. You were as happy then as you are now. And as Jake said, when he came on my podcast, that nothing has changed. And in fact, the only thing hanging over you that might have made you miserable was the thought that you couldn't possibly be happy because you hadn't got there yet. And then again, again, when you realise that there doesn't exist and there is, if you think that there is some place in the future, it will never be where you are now, 
you know, you, you're forced to, to, to realize that this is it. And this is great. And I'm enough. And I have enough. I'm as, as successful as I need to be. And um, I just need to fill my life with, with more uh, things that make me happy. There's one thing I think about, right? I remember listening to a podcast of yours once where you spoke about you've been pushing for success so hard, you've sacrificed relationships. Yeah. Right? Are you single at the moment? No. Good. Because yeah. do you know what? I th- and I firmly believe, as we sit here now and we talk about you know, how lucky we all are and how blessed we all are and how well things are going, right? It all ends. And I am an absolute firm believer that what is left at the very end is your relationships. Don't do all this at the expense of relationships because that will be a regret, I think. You might I completely think agree. It took me a long time to realise that. Maybe I've only realised that in the last 12 months. And now I've started to evangelise about it. I've just tried to tell all of my little the hustle porn stars that I think are following me in my wake to not sacrifice their friends, family and, and girlfriends. Listen, we always finish with some quick-fire questions. Okay. Nice and speedy. Three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into. Optimism, kindness. Yeah, good. And resilience, I'd say. Yeah, I say resilience because people think of the word being tough. No, that's not how I see it. Is being able to handle when things don't work out the way that you might have wanted them to go, but keep moving forward regardless. Not being defeated by what happens to you, not becoming yeah. what happens to you. So what advice would you give a teenage Stephen just starting out? Uh, you were right uh, uh, when you thought that you could, regardless of grades and regardless of not having the silver spoon or anything. You were right in that. Yeah, and that that did that actually didn't matter. What mattered more wasn't your material circumstances, it was the circumstances of your mind. How important is legacy to you? Not that important, to be honest. That's not, st- not to say that I don't want to help as many people as I can, but legacy, I'm okay with dying and never being here again. You know, how did I feel 100 years ago? Great, I was dead then. So I don't care about, like, I don't care about death, and I don't, I, I'm like, I have this great thing, this opportunity called life, do my best, and then my time will come and I'm dead. And do I care about statues when I'm gone? No, I won't be here to see them. So what one golden rule would you pass on for our listeners that are interested in living a high-performance life? I think it would, it, it's heavily inspired by the time I've spent with, um, with Jake today, which is just that really all of your goals and all of your ambitions and um, everything you might want to achieve live in believing you can and making one tiny step in that direction. Sometimes it feels like ambitions and goals are like a big mountain, and they are in many respects, but the mountain is moved one like small pebble at a time, and that's the, that's the way, way to get there. And honestly, it's all... It's all about your mind and your thoughts. So instead of trying to work on, you know, moving the world, I think you should really work on um, building evidence in yourself and getting more positive in your thoughts by taking one pebble away at a time. What a lovely way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honour. pleasure. I mean that. Thank you, guys. Damien. Jake. Well, Stephen is an amazing individual. I, I think I'm just left with this feeling of... Well, slight inadequacy because <laughs> mentally he seems to be so strong. He seems like it's all so sorted, you know? Yeah, he was very much wanted. There was like a real innate wisdom to him that you wouldn't necessarily associate with somebody of 27. But I think some of that comes from the fact that he's so open. He's open to new ideas. He's open to new ways of working. You know, he's constantly questioning that curiosity was 
was almost just coming off him in waves. At his age, I was running around the Blue Peter Garden, <laughs> dressed as a pink lobster, popping balloons filled with foam. Let's just have a moment to remember the difference. Let's think of that image. between <laughs> between him and me. But I, look, I don't know what the what the future holds for him. And you know, you kind of sense that whatever he puts his mind to, he's going to make it successful. And I, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what happens. I think what was really interesting in comparison to some of the other guests that we've had was our in the quick fire question of how important was legacy and for him it was not at all it was about actually embrace the moment enjoy life and what it throws at us in the moment rather than constantly be planning ahead for a better future and i thought that was really that was really quite profound well, huge thanks to Stephen Bartlett. Man, he's so busy jetting around the world, but he still takes time to sit and talk to us. And I really hope you got a lot out of that conversation. I know that I did. Listen, if you enjoyed it, please leave a review. If you don't already, please subscribe. Please join me in saying thanks to Finn Ryan for hard work. He's from Rethink Audio. And do keep an eye across social media for details of the next high-performance podcast. 